So this morning, we are continuing to listen to the stories of Jesus, these stories that Jesus told, and we want to wrestle with what they mean for us. I like Jesus' stories because they refuse to be pinned down. You can't just say, well, this is what the story means. I will distrust anybody who says, this is the meaning of the parable, because that's not the way the stories of Jesus work. This morning's story is a prime example of that, Matthew 18, verse 12. And Jesus tells this story. What do you think? If someone had 100 sheep and one of them wandered off, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go in search of the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I assure you that he is happier about having that one sheep than the 99 who didn't wander off. In the same way, my Father in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones. So as I read this story, I have two questions that came to mind. And the first one is this. Jesus says, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go in search of the one that wandered off? And my first question is, well, I don't know. Would he? Is this good shepherding practice to leave your flock on the side of the hill and go find the one? Or is he a reckless, uh, not very wise shepherd who's leaving his 99 in search of the one? Well, commentaries say both. One commentator says this, unfortunately, this parable has become so familiar to us that it no longer shocks us. What kind of shepherd would be so utterly foolish that he would abandon his flock to the hazards of the hills in order to search, perhaps unsuccessfully, for a single sheep. And why would a shepherd rejoice more over the wayward sheep than over the more dependable members of the flock? Jesus, the master parable teller, intended to shock his audience into insight. Only such a foolish shepherd can represent God's concern for each of his straying children. It always makes me think of the, the worship song, The Reckless Love of God. Oh, the reckless love of God that pursues me. And she, like, what a kind of shepherd would be so reckless as to leave 99 sheep and go after the one. In contrast, though, another commentator writes, well, 100 sheep was the average size of a flock, and shepherds and other herders did leave their flocks in search for missing animals. Often they left them with other shepherds or herders working with them in the same vicinity. So depending on how you answer that first question is going to shape what this parable story of Jesus means for us. The second thing that maybe you asked when I read the story is, who are the little ones? And that is a great question. I'm so glad you thought to ask that one. Who are the little ones that Jesus, that God seems to care so much about? Well, one of the things we need to recognize in this parable is that Matthew is going to use this parable differently than Luke. Luke tells the same story, but Luke has something else that he's trying to teach than what Matthew is trying to teach. And so the context of the chapter of Matthew helps us understand both the parable that Jesus, the story of Jesus, and it also helps us understand who the little ones are. So Matthew 18, 1 verse 5, the disciples want to know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus pulls a child, very likely a little girl, 
And he pulls her into the center of the disciples, and he explains to the disciples that those who are like a little child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A child. But the problem is, today, we actually really celebrate children. We love children. We put them up in the front of our congregation, and we tell them stories. I dream of being a kid again when all I had to do was eat craft dinner and play Nintendo, right? We idolize our childhood, the days of the past, the easy way of life. Children today have been called the object of our undying devotion and affection. This is not what Jesus meant when he talked about children. Children, within their historical context, Jesus, by centering a little girl, is pointing to the weakest, most vulnerable, least significant human you can think of. Children in the ancient Near East were property. The word for child in Greek, in Hebrew, is not even gendered. It is an it. Jesus put it in the center and said, this is the greatest in the kingdom. The little ones, the children, are not the people that you want to be. They are the ones who are completely vulnerable in a hostile world, someone dismissed as insignificant, perhaps even despised and unwanted, someone completely dependent upon others. The little ones are those who are culturally marginalized, who are pushed to the edge. What's, what's interesting is the Greek word for greatest can also mean literally to take up space. So the disciples ask, who in the kingdom of heaven is going to take up the most space? Who's going to take up this area, the, the sense of space? And I, that got me thinking because as a, as a white man, I know something about taking up space within a culture. I know what it means that by virtue of my sex and my race, I take up space in society. I am afforded the privilege of speaking. Even my job, what I am doing now, is I get to take up space within this time that we have together. My voice carries weight. I am asked my opinion on things. I am awarded uh, and applauded when I do. What is interesting to me is the way that Jesus takes one of those who has been pressed out of the space, pushed to the margins, who does not have voice, who may not be asked what they think about a situation, and puts them into the center. To allow, what does it mean then to allow those who have been pushed to the edge or excluded or made, fe made to feel less than because of their gender, their race, their economic status, what does it mean to be fully present in the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where those who have been pushed to the margins are centered as deeply valuable to God. And now we begin to understand the little ones. Next, in Matthew 18, 6-9, there is some violent imagery that speaks to the value of these little ones. Jesus says, whoever causes these little ones to, who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and be drowned at the bottom of the lake. A little bit later, he says, if you are causing one of these little ones to go astray, it's better to cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye. Again, Jesus pulls this radical image of self-discipline and 
let me suggest to you two things that if this passage seems too violent or too extreme, one is perhaps we have undervalued the little one. We should catch the intense passion and care that Jesus shows for those who are vulnerable and marginalized. If you hurt those on the outside, it is better for you to drown in the sea. If that seems extreme, maybe we don't understand just how much they mean to Jesus. The second thing to notice or understand in these challenges of Jesus comes from my friend Janessa Naylor Giesbrick, who recently said in a sermon on this passage that what we should hear in these words of Jesus is a call to radical self-discipline that, so that we do not lead others astray. This is our call to following Jesus in a way that is disciplined and careful and committed to being in the way and transformed in the way of Jesus in everything we do so that we are not living in sin or living in ways that cause harm to others that are not leading the marginalized or the vulnerable in our society away from Jesus. Then in Matthew, we have the parable, the story of the lost sheep. And then we come to this, I think, deeply misunderstood passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, verses 15 to 17, has sometimes been seen as like the blueprint to excommunication. Uh, how do we get rid of sinners in the church? Jesus says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile. And now here translations will say pagan or sinner as well. Or, and, a tax collector. So maybe like me, if you grew up within the evangelical church, you've heard that this is the way we address sin in the church. We go personally, and then we bring more and more people, and we slowly turn up the heat on those who are doing wrong. And then the last step is the logical consequence for those who refuse to change their ways. We remove them from the church. Right? Or is that what Jesus meant? The key, I think, is partly in what Jesus says, to treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Recorded by Matthew, the tax collector. The one whom Jesus graciously welcomed, called, ate with. Jesus was the one who with a notorious reputation for his radical welcome and inclusion of Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus never kicked out a tax collector or a Gentile. He healed them. He welcomed them. He ate with them. So when we come to the end of these steps, we, we kick them out, right? That's certainly what we used to do. I'll, I'll forever be struck by a man I met who was uh, kicked out of the church because it was determined that his car had too much chrome and it was worldly. And so he had to be removed from the church. We know, I know people who have similar experiences with radios or televisions within their homes who are kicked out or excommunicated from their church. Obviously, it hasn't always been used so frivolously. It, it has been used in times when there was really obvious and horrible sin that was tearing apart families and churches, and, and it was used as in, in ways for serious things as well. 
but do we ever have the right to kick people out of the church? One of my seminary professors, Timothy Geddert, writes, we never seek and are never given the right to dispense with a fallen member. Rather, the final act is to treat people as a tax collector or a Gentile or a sinner is to recognize that the member of the congregation has removed themselves from the community and it is now the community's job to win them back to the church. And so Janessa so powerfully says, this is not a roadmap to punish. The point is a detailed outline of the great lengths we are called to to hold each other in community. It is not a roadmap to punish. The point is a detailed outline of the great lengths we are called to to hold each other into community. Janessa clearly challenges many of our assumptions. This is not about how to get rid of people. This is about how much work we have to do as a church to hold on to those in our community when there is sin and division. Verse 15, it says, if you listen, if they listen to you, you have won over your brother or sister. I actually prefer the NRSV translation, which says, you have regained the one. You have regained the one. You see, the point of these steps is not to get rid of people. It is to regain the one. If they come around at step two, we don't go on to step three and step four. If they change their ways in step two, then we have regained the one. We have, we have won. It is, it is good. We have brought them back into the fold of God. You see, the point of the steps is not to get people out. It is to regain the one that has wandered away. Just like the story of Jesus. A shepherd who leaves the majority of the good sheep to recklessly pursue and regain the sheep that wandered away, revealing to us all the heart of God who longs for the wandering to return. God, with a particular love of the little ones, a love for those society tends to marginalize, the, the women, the children, the foreigner, the tax collector, the sinner. God pursues all and invites them to come into his flock to be safe under his care, to be centered and valued as children of God. The story of a shepherd pursuing the lost sheep reminds me of the great lengths that God will go to to bring me and you into the community of God. And then I hear also the invitation for you and I to do the same for others. I'm reminded that it is the shepherd's willingness to pursue the lost sheep that gives the 99 a sense of security because one day we too may find ourselves wandering away from the flock of God. But we know both that God, our good shepherd, and his community, the church, will pursue us and try to win us back. We see the great lengths that God will go to to regain the lost and we are invited to do the same. Now notice, this passage does not start with the church. This is not about the pastor's job to pursue the wandering sheep. This is your job. If someone has something against you, if you have a conflict with someone, if you see someone wandering away, you go first. Then you bring someone along to help you if you need it. The, the church, the pastor, the like that organization, that structure 
only comes at the very, very end. This is our work to pursue those who are wandering and lost. And so one last time, I want to quote from Janessa. She she said it way better than I ever could, so I was just like, well, I'll use her words. She said, The kingdom of heaven desperately desires the created people of God to enter in and remain. The kingdom of heaven values every single person. It values humility, integrity, grace. It offers us forgiveness in abundance and invites us in turn to offer forgiveness in abundance to those around us. The kingdom of heaven is a picture of a community so dedicated to the love of God and neighbor that even in the challenges of sin and conflict, the regaining of each person is considered the most important thing. Jesus calls tax collectors and sinners to him. Jesus elevated women in a society that devalued them. Jesus invites us to take lessons from children, and Jesus brings healing to people's bodies and souls. Jesus continually reaches out, valuing mercy, not sacrifice, calling sinners to him, and regaining each person through his love and his grace. And so these verses in Matthew 18 do not give us a picture of how to get people out of the church. It offers us the path to being the reconciling community. It is easy to join, but hard to leave. This is no doubt difficult work. But the task of bringing people into community is important. Important enough that we commit to having those difficult one-on-one conversations. That we bring in others as we need. We invest our time into relationships and pursuing those who wander. We see in the story of the lost sheep that God deeply values people. And in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, we see that God invites us to do the same. We are given by Jesus a beautiful picture of the kingdom of heaven that wants all to come and stay in the fold of God. A picture of a community dedicated to each other even when sin and conflict might seek to pull us apart. And so friends, let's commit together to being part of this kingdom community and living that kind of relentless pursuit of the wandering and valuing of the little ones. Amen.